Welcome to Beliefs of the Heart Weekly Reflection. I'm Sam Williamson, and today we're discussing the dregs of culture. I was in a college ministry that targeted its evangelism for one purpose, to select future leaders. I'm ashamed to admit we call this process selective evangelism. We felt we could recognize future spiritual dynamos by their past high school triumphs. We pursued unbelieving men and women who excelled at sports, academics, and I'm even more ashamed to admit, who had a sense of coolness about them. The ministry chose to target evangelism to these cool students because it felt it could discern God's future go-getters based on natural gifting. It clung to this heresy despite God's direct rebuke to the prophet Samuel, who thought he could pick Israel's next king by his good looks. I suppose we thought we were smarter or more spiritual than one of God's greatest prophets. But the humanistic virus that infected that ministry still flourishes in modern Christendom. Look at how many megachurch pastors are good-looking and just plain cool. Virtually every one of them. And those who don't look cool spend their money on ratty jeans and tattooed sleeves. The worst part is that believers in the pew begin to doubt God's impact through their own lives simply because their body shape is pear, their intellect is lower than Einstein's, and the only sport they excel at is shuffleboard. As though God needs Joel Olstein's smile to part the Red Sea. Because God challenges every culture. Every culture nurtures biases against which human traits are most needed. And in every single age, God defies our humanistic biases by choosing servants outside each age's coolness quotient. Early societies adopted primogeniture, a system where the oldest son got all the marbles. Well, at least the largest inheritance and greatest power. And into this culture, God always chose the youngest, not the oldest. Abel, not Cain. Isaac, not Ishmael, and Jacob, not Esau. In those same times, women were valued by their beauty and the number of children they could bear. But God chose old barren Sarah, not young nimble Hagar, unwanted Leah, not supermodel Rachel, and barren Hannah, not fruitful Penina. Ancient times saw frequent hand-to-hand battles, so all the Semitic civilizations prized brawn and bravery. But God chose coward to Gideon over all the other Israelites. And tiny, artistic David over his macho, beefy brother Eliab. In Jesus' time, the cultural elite prized pharisaical holiness, rabbinical education, and urbane Jerusalem sophistication. And Jesus chose hicks from Galilee, smelly, unrefined fishermen, collaborating tax collectors, and doubt-filled Thomases. Also in Jesus' time, cultural norms devalued women so much that a female witness was not considered valid in court. Yet Jesus chose to reveal his risen body first to Mary Magdalene, a former demoniac, mental patient, and a female. For a time, the only witness to the resurrection of Christ was a woman. God always chooses the dregs of society to shame its divas, God's selections. Modern people have rejected past cultural elitism. We don't think the older brother should get all the marbles. And as a third son, I especially like that change. And we don't value women on how many kids they have. But we still measure women by their waistline and men by their wallets. Is our society really any better? If we think we are God's greatest gift to his kingdom, 
we are next to useless. If we believe we lack all cultural coolness quotients for us to serve successfully, God can do a mighty work. We are in the perfect place for him to break all society's unwritten rules and to kiss a frog into a prince. God is not pursuing men and women who draw attention to themselves, to their beauty, their intelligence, their brilliant oratory, or their self-confidence. God chooses people who draw attention to him. True spiritual selective evangelism is when God kisses nobodies into somebodies. I'm ashamed of participating in the selective evangelism. Selective evangelism. Just just the phrase when I look back, it just it's nauseating. There's just so much wrong with it. Um in our honest moments, in my honest moments, I would not have chosen Peter to be a disciple. I mean, he was hot-headed, he was um arrogant, and, you know, and also James and John, they're saying, hey, we want to be on your right and your left. Matthew is a tax collector. He is a collaborator with their greatest enemy, what they thought was their greatest enemy, Rome. Thomas, he has so little faith. We would not have chosen these disciples. Maybe maybe Judas. Judas seemed to sort of be with it. At least it was sort of financially prudent. I don't know. Uh, for himself. I'm not saying for the kingdom. Maybe we would have picked John because at least he seemed smart. But one out of 11, one out of 12, that's not very good. No one would have chosen six-year-old Samuel to be a prophet, to give this word to Eli. No one would have picked Abraham because he was an idolater. No one would have picked Moses. Moses may be before his murder, but after the murder, no one would have picked him. No one would have picked David. David was just a kid. No one would have picked Hosea. Hosea, you know, wasn't very good at picking a wife, was he? Um, Moses, like I said, maybe before he was humbled, but later on, Moses is called the meekest man on earth. And, you know, that's just not the kind of person we're thinking of leading a multi-million army from Egypt into the promised land. It's not, This is not the people we would pick. Our selective... Now, the thing is, is we all do a selective evangelism. I mean, let's, let's be honest for a moment. If... If it was up to us, who would we pick? I mean, some of us would pick the person who speaks really well. Some of us would pick the person who looks really good. Some of us would pick the person who listens really good. But we all have our criteria that we would use, and God doesn't do any of them. He doesn't. I mean, if you look at all the main characters in Scripture, and we look at them honestly, we say, I don't think I don't think I would have picked Abraham or David. I don't think I would have picked Esther. Deborah was pretty good. I think I would have picked her. Um, I don't know if I would have picked Adam and Eve. But our society now, I think, adores, maybe is infatuated. We almost bow to the cool, hip, fast-talking, relevant, savvy, sexy, groovy, I don't know, preacher. And, And, you know, it just, to me, the idea of God working through outcasts, and I'm talking about David as a child was an outcast. That he was, he was the, his father calls him the runt of the litter, where he calls him in Hebrew the phrases hakatin. 
Hakatam. He was the runt of the litter. God uses the outcast for one reason. It's so that all the glory goes to him. So that we don't say, I want to be like David. I want to be like Moses. We say, I want God to work inside me. I, I'm in a current situation right now where I'm I'm on a board of directors of a nonprofit, and we are just in a very, very tough situation. And I can't see a way out. If I see one solution, I think a family's going to get divorced. If I see another solution, I think some wrong is going to be done. I don't know how to pray. And I think God is saying to me, exactly. Sam, you don't know how to pray. You can pray that my will be done. You can pray that I bring goodness out of this. But you can't even pray for your own solution so that when God brings about an answer, glory goes to him. I think that's God working in me. I think God's saying, Sam... You think that you know the answer, like selective evangelism. And I, and I feel like God's saying, no, you don't. You know, when Moses was leading the people of Israel, they come up against the Red Sea. He cries out to God. He says, I don't see an answer. And God says, just keep moving forward. In other words, the answers are beyond us, so the glory goes to God. So I think it's true in a selective evangelism. I think it's just true in prayer. The best times in my prayer life probably are the times when I don't have, I don't see an answer. I don't see how God can possibly bring something good out of this. You know, there was one other problem with the selective evangelism approach is we were a college ministry evangelizing people, obviously evangelizing people, but it created a culture of conformity because we were picking the people who were in essence most disciplined, the best athletes, the best scholars, and these people tend to be disciplined, but not everybody was as disciplined. Not everyone was as naturally disciplined. So people started faking discipline. You know, when I first joined it, people were pretty honest in their small group. I was really amazed at how honest they would be about their sins, about their thoughts. But over time, people quit saying, I skipped a few prayer times this week, because we didn't want to be that person who was so undisciplined. We sort of faked it in order to be choice, to be select, to be that prime beef. Um... But Paul said he wanted to be the, he, he was the scum of the earth for us. And I think there's a church actually in Denver named the scum of the earth, which I think is hilarious. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, because they will see God. Jesus says to the Syrophoenician woman, you know, should I give my feast? I mean, I've come to give my feast to Israel. Should I give it to the dogs? And, you know, you just say, Jesus, this is so harsh. I can't believe it. But the Syrophoenician woman enters into Jesus' metaphor, and she says, look at even the dogs get the scraps off the table. Her entry into the kingdom is not to say, look at me, I deserve to be a leader. She says, look at me, I am broken and weak, and I will accept the scraps off the table. And Jesus says, you get it, you get it more than most of the people who've been raised in Scripture. You get the humility. Paul said he did not speak with rhetoric. Now, our understanding is he was he was a brilliant man. I mean, brilliant. But he did not use his brilliance so that when someone's heart was changed, it was an act of God, not his own rhetoric, rhetorical style. Can we learn to do that? I mean, not to trust my plans, not even to pr- trust my my ideas of what God should do. Not to trust my brains, not to, I don't have to worry about trusting my beauty, but not to trust our good looks, not to trust our health, not to trust our brilliant way to speak. Is there a way that we can trust God and actually sort of dumb down our own, our, our externals? I, I don't mean dumb it down, but Paul, Paul didn't speak with all the rhetoric he could so that God would get all the glory. 
David did use a spear and a bow and a chariot, but he said some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we will trust God. He said he's not going to trust in the bow. He's not going to trust in the air. It's not that he didn't use them. You know, to be good looking or smart or a good talker is not a disqualification. David used spear, bow, chariots and horses, but it's a disqualification if that's what we rest in. I think um, I've said before that the two hard things about writing these articles is picking a title and uh, picking a picture. And in this case, it wasn't hard. Dregs of culture just jumped out at me. I don't know why. And I had a picture of a guy, you know, with a tattoos, half sleeve, maybe it's a woman, I can't remember. And I just thought, this is just perfect. This is, this is, I think God is calling us to be the dregs of culture, not the savvy of culture. I think my comment goes to Linda, who said, Sunday after Sunday, lights, camera, action, all for the sake of actors who disguise themselves as pastors while entertaining vast numbers of people in our many nations' churches. Now, I don't think I don't think Linda's meaning to say all pastors are just entertainment, but I do think she's meaning to say when our goal is entertainment, then we are sort of focusing on ourselves. How good of a singer I am? How good of a speaker I am? How well do I dress? Can I wear those $5,000 tennis shoes? If our goal is to point to God, we're not entertaining anymore. We're pointing. We're, we're saying, look at Jesus. Look at God. The, the, the one who loves us, the one who, who, who kisses the beast into beauties. God bless you. I hope to see you all next week. Goodbye. Thanks for listening. Please join us by following this podcast or liking it. And visit our website, beliefsoftheheart.com, for more articles, books, videos, podcasts, and courses, all designed to foster intimate theology deepening a real relationship with the real God who is there. See you next week.